June 4th, 2017. Bhagavad Gita 240, Denver, Colorado. Thank you all very much for participating in the chanting. I hope you all are able to enter into the meditation of the chanting. And uh, so I'm here in Denver working on a book uh, with my co-author, Dr. Data, my alias is Dr. Best, and we're working on a book based on the Bhagavad Gita about the natural art of work, how we can uh, work in this world, have our career, contribute to society in a way that makes us actually fulfilled. So I'd like to speak tonight on uh, one of the chapters of this book, and I'm hoping that you'll find it helpful in your life. I'm also hoping that you can give me some feedback. And let me know if you think that we're on the right track. You all willing to do that? Everybody willing to do that? Right, if you, you can also talk to Dr. Dato here, a.k.a. Rukmini. I want to start from this verse in the Bhagavad Gita, perhaps one of the more well-known verses from the Gita, where the Supreme Lord Krishna says, in this endeavor of yoga, there is no loss or diminution, and a little advancement on this path can protect one from the most dangerous type of fear. So we're talking about something, there's no loss, it never diminishes, and it brings you an increase in peace and security. We're going to be looking at how to find real meaning in our work, looking at this concept of increase. So many years ago, a friend of mine was running a cosmetics business, and I happened to be visiting her area, and she said to me, oh, I just lost one of my key employees. Would you be willing to help me out? So simply because she was my friend, I agreed. And so I was spending every Saturday working at a kiosk in a mall, uh, going up to people and trying to convince them that they should use a buffer on their nails instead of nail polish. So I would kind of practically accost people in the middle of the corridor of the mall, and I would say, hey, can I have your hand? And I would take their hand, and I would use this buffer on their nails until their nails shined, and then I would try to sell them uh, this item, along with many other cosmetics, most of which, in my opinion, were more or less useless. In fact, this, uh, you know, our key item, this buffer, I considered completely useless. Somehow human beings had gotten along for millennia without it, and I felt that they could go along for the next few millennia without it as well. Even if some of the items had some use, they were way overpriced, and they were overpriced because everybody was getting a cut. You know, she was paying me on commission and everybody all the way down the line. I figured there must have been at least 15 people taking a cut off this product. Uh, so although I was able to help my friend and, and pick up a, a little bit of spare change on the way, I didn't enjoy the work. I didn't enjoy it because I felt it didn't have value. I felt it didn't have any meaning, that I wasn't making a contribution now, when we were sitting down to write this chapter for the book, How to Have Our Work Have Meaning, I realized that I probably spent most of my life trying to figure out the meaning of meaning. I could just think about this for a minute. What do we mean when we say, what I'm doing, does it have any meaning? Does it have any value? In fact, one of the books I was researching for this chapter had several chapters devoted to this topic. What is the meaning of meaning? What I'd like to present tonight is absolutely radical. Completely radical and revolutionary. Now, it's so radical and so revolutionary that some of you might not like it. Because it shakes the very foundations 
of what we consider to be value and meaning. Now, there's a lot of research out there that we're only going to be happy in what we do if it has a purpose. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the work of Daniel Pink on Drive. It's a book, it's very, very well-known, videos and TED Talks, etc., on human motivation. And he says we need three factors in order to be motivated, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Our work needs to have some purpose. In my own doctoral research, I was looking at motivation, and there we looked at an international study done by a gentleman named Hertzberg, where he said one of the key components to happiness in work is a sense of responsibility. In other words, I matter. If I don't show up, it makes a difference whether I'm there or not, whether I do my job or not. And perhaps many of you have heard of the word flow, like finding flow in your work, which was popularized by Csikszentmihalyi. And in his main work about flow, he also devotes a huge section of the book to the idea of meaning. If we're going to enter into the state of flow, which many people have compared to the concept of samadhi, there has to be some connection to something greater than ourselves. And he says, from the beginning of human civilization, people looked up at the stars at night and said, how can I be part of something greater than ourselves? Now, if we normally think about meaning, we normally think about meaning in a way that the Bhagavad Gita and books like the Bhagavatam, do we have a Bhagavatam there? Maybe somebody could bring me up a Bhagavatam. So in books like the Bhagavad Gita, which we're reading from today, and by the way, if you're more interested in what we're talking about, I would really suggest that you get yourself a copy of the Bhagavad Gita. Do we have Bhagavad Gita's over there for sale? How much is this Bhagavad Gita over there? How much? Donation. It's a donation. Okay. What's a suitable donation range for this book? Ten dollars. Ten dollars. Okay. And if you'd like it, myself or either of the Swamis here, we'd be happy to sign a copy of the book. For people, okay, so myself or the Swamis, they'd be happy to sign a copy. Or if you'd like to get a copy, uh, the Bhagavatam, Bhagavad Gita is is basic, Bhagavatam is advanced, and this comes in many uh, volumes over there. So what most people think of as work of value is want the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam define as a little lower level. They define it simply as honest work. Now, honest work provides a foundation for meaning. It provides a receptivity for meaning. But as we're about to see, it doesn't really provide in and of itself meaning. Okay, so what's honest work? Honest work is, first level, is where there's an equal exchange. I pay what it's worth. I charge what it's worth. Right? There's no cheating Like one thing I didn't like about those cosmetics is I felt we were charging more than they were worth. You know, too many people taking a cut down the line artificially inflated the price. So if you were to take your time to make the thing yourself, even counting the value of your time, you could have made it for much less. So some kind of an honest exchange. And we think of this in general, honest work. Someone's not cheating. I mean, the other extreme is you're stealing. You know, in stealing, you're trying to get something without giving anything at all in exchange. And then between stealing and honest work is you're trying to get a little bit better deal on your side. Then another area of honest work would be that it provides for people's genuine needs. And this, again, I felt with this cosmetic business, especially our prime product of the nail buffer, that nobody really needed to get every single little ridge off of their nails. You know, no. In fact, nobody woke up in the morning and said, oh my God, I got ridges in my nails, and so they don't perfectly reflect the light. Where am I going to find the product to do it? We had to convince them that they needed it. Right? It's called manufactured needs. It's something you never needed, you never thought you needed, never, you know, never suffered without it, and someone all of a sudden convinces you, you really need this. And yeah, I really need this. It would really improve my life. So we can also define honest work 
as work that meets a genuine need. And there's many ways you can analyze needs. You know, psychologists have different categories of needs, physiological needs, food, water, shelter, right? Some of you perhaps familiar with the famous uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where he talks about how you need, you know, temperature and water and food, and after that you need security, and after that uh, social needs, and finally get get up to self-actualization. And people have debated whether really one builds on the other, because if that were true, there wouldn't be any starving artists who go for self-actualization even though they don't have enough to eat. Uh, But the point is that whether we take those as consecutive or, um, or existing at the same time, still, we can make a list of what needs there are. Needs meaning if you don't have them, there'll be some suffering in some way. So we can say honest work provides for people's genuine needs. So there's an equal, fair exchange. It provides for people's actual needs. Another aspect of honest work, and this is covered to a great extent, uh, again, in the Bhagavad Gita, is where the means is also honest. Where there's no future suffering, uh, especially in the later chapters of the Bhagavad Gita, if we're looking at chapter 14 and 14, 16, 17 and 18, we'll find that Krishna discusses that when people are in in deep ignorance and delusion, they do things which appear to be nice now but cause future suffering. So if you're apparently meeting somebody's needs now, but you're sowing the seeds for future suffering, then that's also not in the category of honest work. So if I'm feeding you now, but the way I'm feeding you is I'm poisoning the land, I'm poisoning the water, I'm torturing the animals, that's not really honest. You think you're getting something, but in the long run, you're getting harmed. Now, an additional category that Krishna mentions in the Bhagavad Gita, as far as whether or not work is honest or pious, is our intention. So even if I have a fair exchange, and even if I'm providing for people's needs, and even if my means are also good, if my intention is malicious, if I have some ill will involved in my work, if I'm entirely selfishly motivated. And it's it's interesting that Krishna talks about not only the work on the external level, but the work on the internal level in terms of being honest work. So maybe I'm benefiting you, but I don't really care about benefiting you. Maybe I'm giving you a fair price and I'm benefiting you and I'm not using evil means to get things. But I myself am a very selfish, egoistic person and I'm only working for my own self. Then that's not ultimately honest work either. So let's say we had all of those things. Now first of all, are all of those things easy to have? A perfectly fair exchange completely meeting people's needs, no manufactured needs, the means of manufacture, the means of selling, all of those things are also meeting people's needs and not causing any kind of suffering, and people have good intent. Do you think there's many jobs where all of those are present? Not very many. That's pretty difficult. And in fact, Krishna also in the Bhagavad Gita talks about this. He says... He says, every action has some fault. Just like there's smoke over fire. So you're not going to find in this world an action that's perfectly honest. There's going to be some problem. There may be some ill will, or maybe there's some manufactured needs, or maybe some of the means are not so great. So we say, most of us say, well, let me just try to do the best I can. All right. Problem is that that's not just the way we define meaning and value. For most of us, just having honest work by the Bhagavad Gita's definition is close to impossible. But we want value and meaning in work. Now, let's again, if we're going to think about how do I attribute value and meaning, we'll find it's always in terms of an increase. An increase that doesn't have a corresponding decrease. 
an absolute increase. We want to get we want to do away with disease. Let's say we had work that helped people be healthier. Fewer children died of dysentery. You know, there were more healthy children. We'd consider that valuable, right? Or if you have something that lasts for a longer time. I notice that people often think of value in terms of time. If you say, I had a successful business for 20 minutes, would most people consider that valuable? But where's the cutoff? You know, if you say, I had a successful business for two years, does that make it valuable? What about 20? 200? 2,000? At, at what point of time, with increase, do we decide that it's valuable? And why do we decide that 20 years is more valuable than 20 minutes? But we think like that. If it goes on in time, we hope at least that things go on, they're still going on when we die. And we hope they go on after we die in some way, shape, or form. So we think about an increase in time. We think about an increase in benefits for people. Something where there's more. More people have enough money to live. More people are healthy. More people have better relationships. If somehow I could do some sort of work that resulted in some kind of more, and the more stayed, and there wasn't a less on the other side. So let's say that I could help a million children to not have malaria or dysentery, but the way I did that was having another million children work as slave, la- as slave labor. Would that be acceptable? No. So I, remember I told you it's going to be a little radical and revolutionary? All right, folks, you ready for this? All right. You've heard that matter and energy is neither created nor destroyed, right? You've all heard that? And for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction? Think about this for a minute. Neither matter nor energy is created or destroyed, and for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Hmm. Can there ever be an absolute increase in such a world? Just let's think logically for a minute. Nothing is created or destroyed. Neither matter nor energy is created nor destroyed. And for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. What that means is that every increase must be accompanied by an equal decrease somewhere else. Does everybody follow this? Oh. What? There's a hand over there? A hand? Oh. Yes. (laughs) Just think about this for a minute. Every time we increase someplace, there's going to be a decrease of equal measure someplace else in some form. And everything will go to equilibrium. Always. Some things may sometimes be manifest or unmanifest, but everything will go back to equilibrium. There will never be an actual increase. We call this a zero-sum game. Therefore, there is no increase. Alright, if that's not depressing enough, I'm going to say something even more depressing. But don't worry, we end on a very happy and positive note. Not only do we want there to be an absolute increase without a corresponding decrease, we also want to be the agent of that increase. To feel that I'm doing something meaningful, I have to feel that I am doing something meaningful. I just don't want the work to be meaningful. I want 
me to be doing meaningful work. Uh, we have a problem here. To what extent do I have agency in this world? My dear friends, this is a very strange, strange world. It's called the world of Maya, that which is not. It is not what it appears to be at all. While I have free will, each of us has free will. Can I cause an absolute increase in my own life? Can I do that? No, because any increase I cause is going to be balanced by an equal and opposite decrease someplace else. That's why you notice if you get some pleasure, you have to work for it. And sometimes you pay for it later. Have you noticed this about pleasure? You have to go through some kind of difficulty to get it, and the pleasure itself may cause difficulty. Yes? You have to work hard to pay for the food, and the food may give you a stomachache or too many pounds. Yes? Make sense to everybody? So even though I can exercise my free will, I can't cause an absolute increase for myself. Can I cause it for somebody else? Not only can I not cause it for somebody else, but here's where we get into the law of karma. All I can be is the delivery person for somebody else's destiny. So if someone else has a destiny of getting something materially nice, I could deliver that like a UPS person. And if they have a destiny for getting something not nice, I could again deliver that like a UPS person. If I apparently benefit someone, all I'm doing is adding to my good karma account. And if I apparently harm somebody, I'm adding to my bad karma account. The only person I apparently harm or benefit is myself. It would have to be like that, otherwise the world wouldn't be fair. If I punch you in the face and break your nose, I will suffer for doing that. I mean, I don't think I have the ability to do that. I'm not very strong. But if, if I were to do that, I would suffer. Whatever pleasure I got from breaking your nose, I would have an equal and opposite amount of suffering I would have to get. But I would only be allowed to break the nose of someone who was destined to get their nose broken. <laughs> and the same way, you know, if I give you $100 then I'm putting up some good karma for myself that I will get back an equal amount of wealth later on. But I'm only allowed to give $100 to someone who has earned the karma to receive it. So I should do good to others for my own sake, but I'm not really changing anyone's destiny. I can change my destiny. But overall for myself, I'm still in equilibrium. So where's my agency? Where's my ability to be the doer? Whoa! And Krishna says something very heavy. We were reading this book, this this verse from the second chapter. He says something really heavy here in the third chapter. He says, Sanskrit, which means they are fools who think that they are the doer. Oh, we have some doership, as he says later in the 18th chapter, but not all, right? I can have all these plans that don't work out because of so many factors beyond my control, so I'm not the only doer. I'm not an independent doer. And so even if I exercise my free will, I can't change anybody else's destiny. All I can do is shift around my own destiny, which goes back to equilibrium. And I don't have absolute agency. There's so many other factors there. Oh my God, I can't have value, and I can't have value. So now we can get very depressed. All right, what are we going to do? So we do want some absolute increase. The fact that we want absolute increase and the fact that we want to be the agent of absolute increase in a world which apparently makes that completely impossible is an indication that reality is not confined to this world and its laws. 
Just like if you're a fish, you don't need to breathe the way that we breathe. You know, if I go underwater, I start gasping for air, but a fish doesn't. If I go in the desert, I'm thirsty, but there are other creatures who don't drink water in a desert. The fact that we all have this desire for an absolute increase without a corresponding decrease and to be the agent of that is indicative that that must be our natural environment and that that must exist somewhere. And indeed, that's what Krishna says in this verse 240. In this endeavor, there is no loss or diminution. Even a little advancement protects one from the most dangerous type of fear. Even a little increase is absolute and it has no corresponding loss or diminution. So how does that work? It's got to be something outside the law of physics and outside the law of karma. So this is nicely explained in another book. Do we have an Ishapanishad? Ah, from different directions. But I, the one there, does it have a different cover? Well, let's look at this one with this cover. Isn't this an interesting cover? I was, I was recently giving a talk at Wits University in Johannesburg, South Africa, and I was referencing this book, and they said, but you, we can't sell this book here. And I said, well, why not? And they said, well, because it has these snakes on the cover. <laughs> and they said, the Africans won't buy anything with snakes on the cover. But, but these, are, these are not ordinary. They're really cool snakes. I'm not going to tell you about them in today's class, though. You have to read. If you want to read about the snakes, then you have to read about them in the Bhagavatam. I don't have time to tell you about them today. But they're, they're really cool snakes. All right, so in this book, Ishopanishad, this is one of the Upanishads which means to come closer to the truth. And here we have a verse which can be called the perfect verse. There's a school I like to visit in London called the St. James School. Uh, if you want to look them up online, you'll hear their students perfectly reciting Sanskrit. But anyway, when I visit that school, the students one time came up to me and said, would you like to hear the perfect verse? And I'm like, yeah. So this verse, uh, I had, if I had more time, I would teach it to you is Om Purnam Ada Purnamidam Purnat Purnam Udachate Purnasya Purnam Adaya Purnam Eva Vasishite Now, the literal translation of this verse is this is complete, that is complete from the complete, the complete comes if you take the complete away from the complete still the complete remains Oh, she's a wonderful audience. Don't tell her to be quiet. It's fine. So how is it if you take the complete away from the complete? Purnasya purnam adaya purnam eva vasishite. How is it that if you take the complete away from the complete, still you have the complete? Then you must be dealing with something, my dear mathematician, which is? Infinite. Infinite. If you have something that's infinite, you can take infinite from infinite and you have infinite. Now, not only can you take infinite from infinite and you have infinite, but that infinite is doing something fascinating. It is always becoming bigger. The infinite is dynamically always expanding without a corresponding decrease because it is infinite. Now, that's what we're looking for. That absolute increase without a corresponding decrease. So what is the description of that infinite? So in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna describes this infinite in three ways. Well, we could say four, even in the Bhagavad Gita. And certainly in the Bhagavatam, well, this is the third canto. It's mostly in the second canto, Bhagavatam. But also in the Bhagavatam, there's a nice description of the four ways in which we can understand the infinite. The first way is of what we call the universal form. And somehow this way has become very popular at the modern time. People talk about the universe a lot. 
can, you have to be in harmony with the universe, and you know, you're going to be pleasing the universe, and you're going to work with the universe. And the uni- well, there's whole descriptions in the Bhagavad Gita 11th chapter, and in the Bhagavatam, especially the second canto, about the infinite being, the universe as a being. The mountains are its bones, the trees are the hairs, the birds are its sense of artistry, and this universal being is actually a person. It's a universal body of which each of us are like a little cell, a little living cell in that body. The next conception of the infinite is the absolute oneness of light and energy, which in Sanskrit we call the Brahman. The third conception of the infinite is the soul of the universe. The super self, the super soul, the witness, the creator, the friend, the neutral observer, who's a well-wisher but neutral, and who lives in every body as if that each body, as if that body is a temple and in every atom who pervades everything with existence and knowledge. And the fourth description of the infinite is the supreme person, the supreme being, uh, who has infinite names, and one of them is Krishna, or the all-attractive. So in all four forms, as the universal body, as the Brahman, light, as the soul of the universe and as a supreme person full of, a, of as many relationships as there are living beings and full of pleasure and, and joy and youthfulness. All of these are expressions of the infinite. The way we have our work meaning is first we receive infinite increase from the infinite. Now, the infinite spreading dynamically always, is offering this absolute increase to everyone all the time. So what we do is we use this time real agency. Here we actually do something. We can choose. I am going to receive an absolute increase from the infinite. Well, that sounds easy to say. I choose to... (sighs) That's possible. But for most of us, this is going to sound really funny, we don't exactly want to. (laughs) Because in this world, we want to have the illusion that I am going to be the agent of infinite increase. I'm going to be the agent of absolute increase. I'm going to be the one to create meaning in this world. And with that kind of ego, we cannot be receptive to receive absolute increase from the infinite because we're claiming ourselves to be the infinite. The practices of every genuine religious and spiritual tradition of the world are meant to remove that conception and make us receptive. That's their purpose. When we do that, something really amazing happens. When we use our agency, we are an agent. Our free will matters. It makes a difference. It changes something. When I decide I am going to stop claiming that I am the infinite source and I can cause an absolute increase in this world of equilibrium, and I instead instead choose to receive, that makes a real change. Well, what happens when I become full of the infinite? But let's back up a minute. I said we talked about the religious rituals and the different practices of different traditions. You might say, well, isn't that a negative? Isn't that the balance? You're getting this gift of infinite grace and absolute increase, but aren't aren't you paying for it with your practices and your time? No. No, you're not. And that's another reason we resist it, 
We like the idea that we've paid for things. We like the idea that we've earned things. It's actually hard to receive something that is a gift. You know, even when we get things that are ostensibly unearned, like if you won a lottery ticket or the great aunt whose name you never knew gave you, you know, $10,000 inheritance, we tend to imagine that we've earned it. We tend to think that, you know, the reason I've won the lottery is that I've really been a good person. Somebody up there noticed it and they gave me my reward. You know, we tend to think like this. But in order to receive this absolute increase from the infinite, we have to have a mood of complete undeservedness. Otherwise, we're back into this equilibrium thing. You understand? Otherwise, we're back into the, in order to get something increased, I have to have to do an equal and opposite decrease. But to receive this real absolute increase, we have to let go of the idea of earning. Our spiritual practices are not a way of earning. They're not mechanical. They're not a payment. Therefore, there's words used again in every tradition. Causeless mercy. Grace. It's given as a gift without payment, without deservedness. Simply by being receptive and wanting it which means letting go of the idea that I am the infinite. And the practices we do here in the Hare Krishna movement are chanting of Hare Krishna, are eating uh, sanctified vegetarian food, observing uh, some restraint and direction in our sexual practices. These things that we do, these practices of prayer and meditation and study, they're simply meant to enable us to let go of our false ego so we're open to this infinite love and grace from Krishna. That alone makes everything we do valuable. And guess what? It gets even better. This is such a mystery and, and such an incredible and amazing thing that I don't know if any of you will believe it. And I therefore invite you to give it a test drive. If to any extent we are receiving this grace from the infinite, this absolute increase by real agency, we can also use real agency to share it. That's very different from helping people in the world of equilibrium where they have to earn it or somebody has to pay somewhere. Just by our desire, by our own agency, we can allow another living being, and I don't just mean human, we can allow any other living being to experience something that's an absolute increase. Why our agency? Because the absolute infinite, whether we understand it as the universal form, the Brahman, the soul, the supreme soul, or the personality, the beautiful, youthful, playful Krishna, he doesn't interfere with anyone's free will, but he also respects everyone's free will. And his mercy and his grace follow the path of the free will of those who are connected with him. If a child asks their parent, oh, please give this person something, even if the parent might not have done so on their own, to please their child, they will do so. If when we are filled with this absolute increase of the infinite, if we have a desire to share that with anyone, then they can also experience it. Now having said that, we are requested to be careful with whom we share. Like Jesus said, don't throw your pearls before swine, they will simply trample it. So we want to have some discretion. 
Those who are completely realized share that absolute increase with everyone without discretion, just by their very existence. Just by their being on the planet, just by their walking, just by their speaking, just by their own meditation. They are a walking portal to the infinite increase. The Sanskrit word for this portal is tirtha, a crossing place. Just like, you know, you can use your phone as a hot spot for others. And so some people are like, anybody can connect, right? So some people are like a walking spiritual hot spot. But for most of us, if we're not on the fully enlightened platform, we are asked to be, have some discretion. We're asked to look for people who have some inclination for re- they may not be yet at the point of receptivity. They may not have given up the false ego of themselves being the infinite benefactor. But if they have some curiosity, any kind of openness, or even if they're just trying for ordinary, honest work, by our desire, by our agency, we can share with them some of this infinite increase. How to do this practically is actually very easy. Just like these books, like, like the Bhagavad Gita, which we've been reading from, and the, and the Isha Upanishad, and the Bhagavatam. You know, we have many members who go and share these books all over the world. We go to people and say, hey, how, how'd you like to check this out? Right? Even if you already have all the books there on the table... You can get some to give as gifts. As soon as you do that, you're putting somebody in touch with the infinite. It's so wonderful that even if you take pure vegetarian food, no meat, no fish, no eggs, and you offer that as a gift to Krishna, and then you take that food and you give it to others, when they taste that food, they're going to taste something beyond the ingredients. They're going to taste something beyond the flour and the salt and the butter. They'll experience some of that absolute increase. If you just give someone the name of Krishna, just the name of Krishna is also a manifestation of that infinite increase. And there's so many ways, in fact, very nice here, also in the Bhagavad Gita, in the 12th chapter, some of my favorite verses, where Krishna says, if you're not envious and you're a kind friend to all living entities, if you don't think you're an owner, if you're equal in happiness and distress, if you don't put anyone into difficulty and if no one else can disturb you, if you're equal in fear and anxiety, even to be like that, one becomes an agent, an actual with our agency of getting other people, ourselves and other people to experience an absolute increase with no corresponding decrease. And perhaps what's even more wonderful is that one can experience that real value and real meaning in practically any work. I mean, you couldn't do it if you run, you know, a mafia brothel. But, you know, other than things like that, in, in any ordinary work, you can use your work as a platform for distributing authentic value and absolute increase. Whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you've got an IQ of 70 or 270, whether you work with your hands or your brain, that's not what determines whether or not our work is valuable. And just having honest transactional work doesn't make it really valuable. But here we have a key to real value. And last, it's not an on-off switch. It's not either you're doing this or you're not. You can do it even to some extent. And whatever extent you do it, as Krishna says in this verse 240, even a little endeavor, he says, in this endeavor, there's no loss, there's no diminution, and even the smallest effort immediately frees you 
from fear. So I hope you found this interesting. And as I said, this is going to be one chapter in our book. Uh, so any feedback you can give us. I hope you didn't mind that I used you all as testers for our chapter. Uh, if there's any kind of feedback that you can give me, uh, questions, comments, or corrections, additions, subtractions. Did you have something you wanted to say? Um, I answered it. Okay. Yes. So does like any of this have like you were saying like everything like makes it feel and stuff? Does that have anything to do with like electromagnetic fields? Because I know when I was in college, like they were telling me like You're you're out of my area. Oh okay. I'm a social scientist. Oh so I don't know. Sorry. Oh, so more creative one, one, thing, one thing you learn in, in, in academia is don't speak outside of your area of expertise. So my answer to that is I have it the foggiest notion. Sorry. Good question. I had a comment. Yes. First of all, I thought that was wonderful. Thank you so much. My only piece of feedback would be to clarify... Like even more, I mean, you probably did in the chapter, but in your talk, mm-hmm. even more the distinction between like the initial like um, stage of trying to reach that absolute increase and like the place that those people were coming from, rather like and, and then distinguish that even more from the. the, the you mean the distinguish distinguish between the honest transactional work and the beginning of absolute increase, um, or the difference between the beginning of absolute increase and full on. At, at first in the talk, it was... I was talking about honest transactional work. That, that was clear, but then when it got to the like, attempt for absolute increase without Christian consciousness and like, coming from a place of like, transcendental love, mm. it, it wasn't clear to me initially, although you clarified later, how, um, or where, where the person was coming from and like, how they like, weren't doing it in their interest. Okay. That's the, that's the only thing I love. Thank you. Thank that, you was, so that was very helpful. Thank you. All feedback is very, very much appreciated. Yes? Thank you. I just have a comment. Yes. Um, I want to say that I like your analogies that you used. Oh, thank so, you. That was really good. Thank, thank you. you. Anybody else? Questions, comments, feedback? We have five minutes. You were talking about cosmos and mercy, so I was wondering how that fits in that, like, we get what we deserve. Like, it was it's on a completely system. different realm. But it would sound like someone is trying harder than another person, but they all seem to get equal cosmos mercy. It might seem unfair and impartial. Mm, very good. So we have an attachment to fairness. Huh? which is one of the things, frankly, that prevents us from receiving this absolute increase. This concept of, I want to feel that I've earned what I've got. And if somebody gets something that's actually an absolute increase without a corresponding decrease, that's not fair. I don't like it. That attitude keeps us in the transactional realm. It keeps us in this realm of equilibrium. That, that's exactly one of the mentalities that prevents us from accepting causeless mercy. We feel like, you know, wait a minute, I, I have to earn it. I have to have an equal amount of decrease in another area. And how dare somebody get something that they haven't earned? Yes. It's, that's, that's one of the prime mentalities that prevents us from receiving uh, Krishna's infinite grace. Exactly, yes. We'll see if there's somebody else before we go back to you. Is there anybody else that would like to say something? Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, this woman. So, thinking about karma. Yes. So there's like such a circle of karma. Like we, we want to protect the cows yes. from being slaughtered. But, you know, maybe that cow was the person slaughtering the cows in the past lifetime. Oh, that kind of question. Okay. Right, so so I, we should each do the right thing not because doing a good thing is going to change somebody else's destiny, but because it's good for us. So I don't need to worry about that. In other words, if I have the mentality that, let's say just now you bumped yourself and you were bleeding, and if I just said, well, that must be your destiny, oh well, that would be very bad for me. My having that attitude 
would cause me to have some deficiency in my own karma. And if I say, oh, you're hurt. Hey, can somebody, let's get a Band-Aid and, and take care of you. That wouldn't change your destiny at all. You are going to get your bandage, whether I give it to you or you'll get it in some way, if that's what you're destined to get. But it will be very good for me. So the illusion that I am actually doing something to help somebody is very useful for people in illusion because it gets them to behave properly. Now, why should it matter? Seriously. Sorry. I did tell you this was going to be revolutionary. I warned you. So why should it matter? Why would I even care about myself getting good karma? Why should we even encourage people in that way at all? Because everything balances out and it all goes to equilibrium. So I mentioned this briefly, but I didn't get into it. If you do honest work, which is in the realm of illusion, where you're not really having any agency to change anything or anybody, but if you do that, it creates a situation that helps you become open to receiving the absolute increase of the infinite. It puts you in a better position. Now, you can be the lowest criminal, evil person and still end up being open to receiving that grace. It happens, but it's unusual. When we're doing honest transactional work, we have some conception that I'm doing this to be in harmony with the universe, I'm doing it to please God. There's something like that going on. You follow It's usually in one of those four conceptions. I'm doing it to please the absolute supreme person. Or I'm doing it to really please the soul of the universe. Or I'm doing it to be in harmony with the great light. Or I'm just doing it to be in harmony with the universe. There's some conception like that. And when you have some conception like that, it starts making you a little receptive. So Krishna explains happiness in the mode of goodness can awaken you to self-realization. In and of itself, it's not valuable. It's like going to an airport isn't valuable, but that's where you can catch an airplane. Now, if I want to go to London, just I can just hang around the airport forever, and I'll never be in London. I'll just be in the airport. However, in the airport, I can catch a plane. So doing what we call pious activity and honest transactional work and higher modes of nature, in and of themselves, they don't mean anything but they give us a platform by which we can reach transcendence. Is that all right? Thank you very much. I think we're going to have kirtan now. Uh, I, would, I, would very, I, very strongly, I very strongly suggest that if, you're, um, if you found any of the topics tonight interesting, uh, please pick up a copy of this book. The Bhagavad Gita as it is. Uh, and if you really want to go further, you can also pick up our, our Sri Shopanishad and our Bhagavatam and you pick up some for yourselves and some to share with others. We have a table at the back. Uh, the Swami and I will be happy to sign a copy for you or several copies for you if you like. Thank you. Thank you.